From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there and now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate airs Sundays at 12 midday only on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM and I'm Kate Turkington and it travels with Kate and we're going to be traveling not only here in our own lovely country of South Africa, we're going to be traveling all over the world. So we might be going one day to India, we might be going another time to where wherever your fancy takes you and please give me a Email me, kate at highfm.com. Email me and tell me about places you'd like me to talk about as well. And I'll talk about one of the many, many, many places I've been to. Somebody once asked me, Kate, how many countries have you been to? I have never, ever counted. And I don't think I ever, ever intend to. But as I say, Kate at highfm, if you've got any sort of queries or places that you would like me to visit that I haven't visited or maybe that you'd like to talk about or suggestions uh, to me. And what we'll do is the first part of the programme each week we'll talk about local domestic things to do. I mean, there are so many things, so much to see and do here in South Africa. And then the second part of the show, as I say, will be spreading our wings, literally, and going to all kinds of places. And as I say, you tell me about some of the places you'd like to hear me talking about as well. And so many of the places, so many places are off limits now. So let me give you a tip. Do it. Do it while you can. Travel while you can, because you don't one day want to say, oh, if only, or what if, do it. Forget grandchildren, forget school fees. Now, I know you can't do that, but take a trip, because there's no better education in the world than travel. From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has travelled there. And now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate airs Sundays at 12 midday only on 101.9 Chai FM. 101.9 Chai FM. Hi FM. It's Kate Turkington. We're talking travel. Um, I'm going to be telling you and. It's a lovely, lovely thing to do. Maybe you've never thought about it. But if you live in Johannesburg or Cape Town or you go to any city in the world, you'll see those big open red top buses. Have you ever done one? Maybe you have if you've been overseas. But have you ever done the one in your own hometown? And I'm going to tell you about the one in Johannesburg. It's just a great thing to do. You can take a trip down memory lane. You can take the kids. I've taken teenagers. I've taken older people. I've taken visitors. It's 
very affordable, it's fun, and it has all kinds of stops on the way. By the way, if you are in Johannesburg, it stops on the hour, every hour, it's very punctual. You can catch it at the zone in Rosebank, right opposite the Houting, Houtrain uh, station. You could, if you want, also get it at Colbrief City or Park Station. They're good places to catch. But in Rosebank, very, very easy place. And if you book online, it's easier too. I mean, you can book when you get on the bus, but it's much, much easier to book online. And they've got special rates for pensioners, for students, for children. And by the way, it's also wheelchair accessible, which is a very good thing to know if you've got visitors perhaps who aren't too steady uh, on their feet, or maybe you're not too steady on your feet uh, either. So there's a soundtrack, you plug in your little earbuds. The soundtrack is actually in 15 different languages, and there's even a kid's soundtrack. So if you've got littlies with you, get them to put their ears in uh, too. And it's a fun it's a fun children's uh, um, experience, too. OK. And also, uh, I'm going to tell you about some of the stops, but if you can add on the Soweto tour at the end, that's great. And if you feel like it, you can do a very, very exciting bungee jump off the Orlando uh, Towers. Don't recommend that for everybody, but if you want to do it, it's it's there. Not many people can say they've bungee jumped in an African city. OK, let me tell you about some of the stops. Uh, these aren't in any particular order. Uh, the bus company have just added Melrose Arch, Nelson Mandela Foundation. Fantastic. You can actually go in there and see a replica of the cell that Nelson Mandela was in for all those, all those years. Really, really uh, makes you think. And then the bus has also got a great new stop, particularly if it's a gorgeous day, on Mumro Drive. And you get one of the best views of Johannesburg you can possibly get. And you can see right the way through to the Mahalisburg. So one of the stops is Constitution Hill, which sounds a bit off-putting. It sounds, is that going to be a sort of boring, boring place? Oh, my word. If you've never been to Constitution Hill, get on the red top bus. You can get on and off at all the different stops. Uh, Constitution Hill, as I say, is just one of them. It's a living museum. It's got a hundred year old uh, history and it actually tells the tale in the best possible way of South Africa's democracy. And also it's not only the seat of the Constitutional Court but it's also a whole bunch of prisons. I mean, you, you may know the very famous people who were imprisoned here. I mean, Nelson Mandela, Mahatma Gandhi, Joe Slovo, Albertino, Susulu, Winnie Mandela, Fatima Mir, the list goes on. But also, it tens of thousands, think of that number, it's a huge number, tens of thousands of people, ordinary people like you and me, were actually imprisoned in Constitution Court in those uh, prisons. There's fascinating art displays. They've got some super, super uh, art. 
free Wi-Fi, so you can send your pictures to family, friends, anywhere in the world. Good loos, good clean bathrooms, and there's a nice cafe on site where you can grab a bite if you want it. That's just one of the stops. Alas, it doesn't stop at the Carlton Centre anymore. I say alas because I remember the days when you went to the movies, the films, the bioscope, whatever you like to call it there, and I can remember going up one of those escalators and there were ladies in fur wraps and long gowns. You actually dressed up to go to the pictures in uh, those days. But now here's a stop that you may not know of. And if you've got a motorhead in your family or your motorhead yourself, one of the stops is the James Hall Transport Museum. Great for, even if you're not a motorhead, it's got ox wagons, it's got steam trains, it's got trams, trams that used to run around Johannesburg for little ones, fire engines, fire engines, vintage cars. There's also a very good little cafe and a gift shop. Lovely place to go, and not a lot of people know about it. So you stop off there, also wheelchair-friendly, stop off there, do your thing, have a cup of coffee, wait for the red top bus to go round again, and off you go. Another stop, the Apartheid Museum. Award-winning, globally award-winning museum. If you've never been there, it's time you went. Won't tell you too much, but just to tell you about when you get there, you buy your ticket, you buy your ticket, and it doesn't matter who you are, young, old, brown, black, pink, female, male, you get a ticket which immediately tells you you're black or you're white. If you're white, you go in the white entrance. If you're black, you go in the black entrance. And your first experience will take you through the experience of being white or black in the apartheid days. It's an amazing museum. Not big, won't take you all that uh, long, but just an amazing place to learn South Africa's history. Then if you need a bit of an adrenaline lift, another stop is Gold Reef City. That's, I don't know how many rides they've got there. I know they've got 16 or more rides because I've taken grandchildren and littlies uh, there. They've got family rides. They've got rides that are going to make you choke in your seat. There's a trampoline uh, park and all other kinds of things to do. So there you are. Take the add-on Soweto Tour 2. You can stop at the Cyberno Museum. My word, all kinds of things to do. So hop on and hop off that city sightseeing bus. From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has travelled there. And now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate airs Sundays at 12 midday only on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM. I'm Kate Turkington and we're talking travel. And now we're going to spread our wings, literally and metaphorically, a bit further than South Africa. I've just come back from Malta. 
Now, you may not all know exactly where Malta is, so let me just remind you. Remember, at one time, in many of our lives, we were taught on a map that Italy looks like a boot and the big ball at the end of the boot is Sicily. Well, just under Sicily, there, sitting not in the middle of the Mediterranean, but in a very, very strategic spot in the Mediterranean, is the archipelago of Malta. It's a group of islands, really only Malta and Gozo, those two islands uh, are visitable in a way because the elders are very sparse and they've got a few goats or a couple of uh, people in. So... It's had a succession of rulers. It goes back to 5000 BC. I'll tell you. I'll tell you about that in a moment. It's the 10th tiniest country in the world, but wait for it. Wait for it. It's got 550,000 people. Two small islands, 550,000 people. But you know, the Maltese are so used to having guests, visitors, migrants, you name it, from all over the world. They're incredibly polite, incredibly friendly, incredibly cheerful. They love people. So you don't get mown down in the little narrow medieval streets. People love to see new faces there. And just to give you an idea how small Malta is, it's only 27 kilometres across and 14 Sorry, uh, 27 kilometres long and 14.5 kilometres across. That's not very, very uh, big. And Malta is quite flat, pretty flat, and Gosa is quite hilly. And I was quite interested to find out, as in many countries, north, south, whatever, New York, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, south of England, London, going up to Manchester. There's not hostility, shall we say, between the uh, two geographic places, but they don't like each other very much. Gozo think Malta people are snobs, and Malta, pe- Malta people think Gozo snobs. Human nature, uh, I suppose. English is spoken everywhere, but interestingly enough, Malta has a unique language. It's a cross between Latin and Arabic. And the Maltese people say the Arabic speakers can always understand them, but they can't always understand if very pure or good Arabic is spoken. But it doesn't matter if you're visiting because everybody but everybody uh, speaks uh, English. Well, one reason being the English I don't know what is the word, colonised it, I suppose, for 180 years. And you can even go and see the house where Princess Elizabeth, before she became Queen of England, the late Queen Elizabeth, lived with her naval lieutenant, Prince Philip, uh, before she became Queen. She always said those were the very best years of her life when she and Philip, they were young and carefree and they lived in Malta. Lovely climate, 300 sunny days uh, a year, although it gets a bit humid October, September time and an excellent infrastructure. Everything works, everything works. And of course, it was built all those years ago, I think 16th century, 
mid-15th century by the Knights of St. John. And who were the Knights of St. John? It was a medieval, very early Catholic military order, and they were formed actually to fight the infidel in inverted commas. So they came from all countries of Europe and they were fighting the Turks, the infidels, whom, whomsoever. But wherever they went, they actually started in Jerusalem in 1200 and something, so even earlier than the 15th, 16th century. But they finally came to roost as their permanent base in uh, Malta. They were even in St. Petersburg at one stage, in Russia as their headquarters. But as I say, finally, they came to roost in Malta. And of course, they built, they had lots of money, they built the most amazing forts and the most wonderful, wonderful churches. And we had a lovely surprise on our first day. As I say, I was there just a few weeks ago, in fact. We went into St. Catherine's cathedral and nobody else was in there, a very small little cathedral and we sat down and on the altar appeared an opera singer. We found out later she was a chemistry professor by day but she sang for us and she sang Ave Maria and then she sang Tosca and I must tell you to be in an ancient cathedral hearing the strains of Tosca, it, it was actually a heart-stopping uh, moment. And something very exciting, a bit later uh, on, we had two American friends with us who were of Maltese ancestry. And they sort of vaguely, vaguely knew about the ancestors who'd gone over to America many, many moons before. But they knew that one of their ancestors had been an archbishop. And our wonderful guide, Lorraine, found the tomb of their ancestral archbishop in, in fact, St. John's Cathedral a bit later on. Oh, my word, can you imagine these two guys, father and son, older guy, 23-year-old son, finding a grave of an ancestor from hundreds of years ago? That was also another heart-stopping uh, moment and interestingly enough, that little cathedral and the bigger cathedral, which is like a spiritual Hollywood for the gold leaf fan, oh, absolutely gorgeous, both survived the terrible, terrible bombing of World War Two. I don't know. Some of you may remember. World War Two, because Malta is in such a strategic position, sits there in the Mediterranean, between Europe, between uh, Africa, on your, as you look at the map, on your left as you go, you're going up to Europe, on your right as you go along the Mediterranean, you're coming to Istanbul, you're coming to Asia, the gateway to Asia. So an incredibly strategic position. And of course, in World War II, everybody wanted it. Germany wanted it, Italy wanted it, America wanted it, England wanted it, etc. And so the, the Germans bombed it. They bombed it. And they practically raised that, the whole of Malta to the ground. But 
some might say this is a miracle. The two cathedrals survived the bombing, a bit like St Paul's Cathedral in London in the Blitz. That survived uh, the bombing. And when you go into St John's Cathedral, it looks a bit like a fortress on the outside. It's like one of the highlights of a trip to Monty. You've got to go. The gold leaf, the portraits, the marble floors, which are actually the roofs of tombs of long-gone warriors and knights, and the only signed portrait of Caravaggio, the only signed painting by Caravaggio, the beheading of St John, just momentous, momentous uh, to see. And interestingly enough, Malta, the, the George Cross, some of you may know, is the highest civilian Courage, award of courage, uh, award for courage that the UK can give. And it's usually given to people or whatever. During World War II, King George VI, as he was then, Queen, late Queen Elizabeth's father, awarded the George Cross to the whole of Malta. It was the first time, and the only time, in fact, that a country in the world has been awarded the George Cross. They hung on, they hung on, they hung on during the bombing. People died of starvation. I met some uh, survivors. And in the end, a British uh, ship limped in to the harbour and it had some supplies and it saved them all. But the thing to do is to go to the War Museum. It's on the ramparts of Malta. What I haven't told you is Malta, Valletta, the capital, is surrounded by these five metre thick walls. It's a fortress. It's a fortress. And Malta has the best port in the Mediterranean in terms of uh, how many ships it can uh, hold, and it's got quite a narrow entrance to the harbour. So it's a very, very easy place, in a way, to uh, defend. And one day we went on a little boat and chugged all the way to the mouth of the harbour. There was a huge 4,000-passenger cruise ship in the harbour. We were absolutely dwarfed by it. We were in a boat with five people. So we chugged along past this monstrosity, I don't know, depending on your point of view, and chugged along to the harbour. And only then do you realise the massive fortification, those great stone walls reared up on either side of it. It repelled the Turks. It managed to uh, repel the Axis during World War Two. The only person who got through, and not for very long, was Napoleon and his troops. But go to the National War, War Museum, big globally award-winning museum. It's on the ramparts. You actually go into the ramparts. Fascinating. Museum. You can go into the 15th century room or the 18th century room and you can go into the World War II uh, room where they've got uniforms of soldiers, all sorts of stuff. Fascinating, fascinating place to uh, learn history. And Valletta itself is, that's the capital of Malta, is on top of a little peninsula and you stand up there, you go into some 
little formal gardens. Everything on Malta, apart from the buildings, are pretty little. It's quite a small place. But you get this view of the harbour, the most magnificent harbour, and absolutely jam-packed with yachts. Why? Because Malta's mooring fees are more affordable, cheaper than almost anywhere else in the Mediterranean. So forget uh, forget your other ports. All the world and his wife seem to be in uh, Valletta. We took a ferry to Goza, and I must tell you, one of the highlights of my trip one of the highlights of my trip was a visit to the Hagarim temples. Now, listen. The Hagarim temples were built 5,000 years before Christ. That's older than Stonehenge, older than the pyramids of Egypt. Not very big. I want you to imagine. Come with me. We walked up a little hill. Goza is more hilly than Malta. We walked up a little hill. A light wind's blowing. The Mediterranean is sparkling blue there to one side. And there is this ring of high freestanding stones. Think about a very big circus tent or a big monkey of some kind. That's all there is, the size of it. But nobody really knows who worship there. Nobody really knows what gods or goddesses or whomsoever or whatever the people worship. But they've made their marks. There are stones with, with spirals etched into them. There are little rooms. And unlike many megalithic temples, it's got an entrance and an exit. If you go to somewhere like Newgrange, for example, in Ireland, that's one of those megalithic structures where the sun shines in at a certain day of the year and hits the holy place, a bit like the pyramids of uh, Egypt or Stonehenge or even the Fortrecker uh, Museum monuments in Pretoria, but this has got an entrance and an exit. Nobody, nobody knows why. But to stand in that place, very, very few, very, very few people, sun beating down, light breeze blowing, and stand among those stones, you just know instinctively this was a sacred place for some unknown people. They know very, very little. We know so little when you when you think about it. Another day, although I think the temples were possibly my highlight, and there's a very good visitor centre before you climb up that little hill so you can get orientated and you can learn the stuff they do know and the stuff they have uh, discovered. Another trip was to very famous Malta's Blue Lagoon. Again, you get on a little boat. Our boatman looked exactly like a Venetian gondolier, and he was drop-dead gorgeous as well. And the sea was rocking quite a bit, so we went in the small boat into the caves where the Blue Lagoon is. The the colour, I have seen blue. I've seen the Scorpion Lake in Tibet. I've seen all kinds of blue, but the blues in the Blue Lagoon, I don't really have words for indigo, turquoise, all the colours of blue that one can possibly imagine. And because the little boat was rocking a bit, the 
wind had picked up a wee bit that day, my beautiful Venetian gondolier offered to take photos for me. So I gave him my I gave him my camera and got some stunning, stunning pics of the uh, Blue Lagoon. And the food. Let me tell you something about the food. Of course, Malta's very near Italy, so there's a very strong uh, Italian influence. But the sort of local dish is called a pastizzi. Pastizzi. What's a pastizzi? Imagine a small, triangular-shaped, flaky pastry. can be filled with savoury stuff, can be filled with sweet stuff, absolutely delicious and one day we were en route because you can walk to most places we were walking and we had a special stop and we got fed I have to say it's quite a hard word to say pastizzi say it yourself pastizzi we had a a pastizzi straight out of the oven was so hot the flaky pastry actually uh, burnt the top of my mouth but they gave us a lovely cold beer to uh, wash it uh, down. So lovely, lovely food. And another day, we we went in something called Rolling Geeks. Rolling Geeks are self-drive electric cars. Think of them, it's a bit like a golf cart. And we puttered round the little narrow streets, as I say, some little medieval streets. But we allowed our two Americans to be drivers, well, we had three Americans. There were just nine of us, uh, three South, uh, three Americans, and the rest of us were South Africans. And the two Americans, the father and son, volunteered to be the drivers, which was like good news and bad news because they're used to driving on the right-hand side of the road in the States, and Malta, having been British for 180 years, although the Romans were there, the Greeks were there, everybody was there. They drive on the left-hand side of the road. So it was a bit um, fraught, shall we say, because my driver, God bless him, uh, Kevin, he kept riding up on the pavement and I'm saying to him, move, move to your right, move to your right. But it was a great way of uh, seeing Malta. And another day we just took an ordinary tuk-tuk, but unlike the tuk-tuk, shall we say, in the streets of Japan, Johannesburg or Cape Town, they're electric tuk-tuks. So we're keeping up, uh, keeping up with the times. My driver was a migrant. Malta has many, many migrants. Uh, there are two big camps in the south of the island where people are processed before moving on. The guy driving our tuk-tuk was actually from Tunisia. I didn't ask him how he got to at Malta and was a physiotherapist and he told me this was Malta was like a stepping stone to Europe for him and he was busy learning Swedish because one day he hoped to get to Sweden and become a physiotherapist again and our very last night we had dinner in a cave uh, a two thousand-year-old cave, which has been transformed into uh, a restaurant. It had the local delicacies. It also had the best creme brulee I've ever had in my life. But the delight was, I said to our waiter, 
I knew at once he was African. I said, where are you from? He said, Zimbabwe. So we we immediately hugged one another, all the Maltese waiters looking very confused uh, at this. And we also met South Africans uh, who were working there in Malta, an absolute hodgepodge of nationalities from all over as visitors. It's also become the party place of Europe because it's very affordable, apparently, for uh, Europeans. So loads and loads and loads of young people, which was lovely. There were two... Uh, girls from Austria at the reception desk of the hotel. I got in the lift one morning and was seeing a friend off back to America. There were two English girls coming in rather wearily and not looking at their sparkling best at five o'clock in the morning after doing a, a night on the town. But such a free, lovely place uh, to be. So maybe put that uh, on your bucket list. I don't much like that expression, bucket list, but as I said to you earlier, go and do these things while you can. You can't go to Russia anymore. You can't go to Tibet anymore. China's a bit dodgy. I mean, the world changes. You know the Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. (laughs) My word, we live in interesting times, but travel, do it. Go, go there. From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there. And now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate airs Sundays at 12 midday, only on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM, I'm Kate Turkington, and we're going to be talking books for a moment, reading as you go, something to read as you're travelling or you're sitting at the airport while all those interminable uh, delays uh, go on, not sipping your G&T if you're in one of the posh lounges. I have a super book for you this week. It's called What Makes Us Human? What makes us human. It's by Paul Jones. It's got a foreword by Jeremy Vine and it's published by Headline. What makes us human? Google it, you'll find it. And what it is, is a collection of essays. Essays sounds a bit ponderous, but it's a collection of rights and thoughts from all kinds of people, from Richard Dawkins to the late chief rabbi of the UK to scientists to football players, answering the question, what makes us human? And here's something interesting for you to think about. Every single language in the world has a word for why. Maybe that's what makes us human. Every single language in the world has a word for why. Not all languages have words for yes and no, by the way. Latin, Irish, Gaelic, few other languages, they don't have words for yes and no. But every language in the world has a word for why. And just... uh, uh, Charles Brandeth, the, the author, he was a former uh, British Member of Parliament too, in his 
a very playful kind of little essay, if you like. Don't like that word essay because it's going to put you off. They're not essays. They're wonderful pieces of superb writing to read as you're travelling. You may know that English is the richest of the world's 2,000 languages. The Oxford English Dictionary alone has 500,000 words. And that doesn't count all the tech words, all the techie words. And the nearest to that, the very nearest to that, are the Germans who only have 185,000 words. So that's something to think about. And what Charles Brandes says in his piece of writing, he knows exactly what makes us human. He says words, language, speech, talking, oral communication. The late chief rabbi of the UK, the late great Jonathan Sachs, he says it's family. He says it's family. That's that's the matrix, he says, that's the word he uses, of our humanity. It's where we learn love, self-confidence, and the basic values that will serve us, and I quote, as our satellite navigation system through the uncharted territory of life. Don't you love that? Isn't that beautifully put? The family is our satellite navigation system through the uncharted territory of life. And then he goes on to say family life isn't easy or straightforward. He says the Bible doesn't hide from the fact that fact from us. And we all know we're all part of a family in one way or other. It's not easy, but my word, aren't we lucky to have families? And then another English writer and broadcaster. I love this. He, Richard Madley, his name is, he writes for the British paper, The Daily Telegraph. He says, it's our self-awareness and our need for answers is what really sets us apart from other species. There you go. That goes back to the word why, isn't it? The need for uh, answers. And he says that's what gives us our thirst uh, for knowledge. I mean, there's so many. Stephen Fry obviously said humour. Everybody has a different take on this. And an essay I love from John Lloyd, who's a TV a producer and writer, he says, we're the only species on earth that is concerned about things that don't directly affect our survival or that of our offspring. He says, porcupines don't look up at the night sky and wonder what all the sparkly bits are. And weasels don't worry about other weasels. Think of them. And (laughs) he says lobsters don't enjoy pub quizzes. So there you go. Where do ideas come from? What's consciousness? And one of the other writers, I can't remember which one at the moment, says we're the only people who know we're going to die. Think about that. From the moment we can understand language, we know that we're going to die. That leopard waiting in the reeds by the riverbed to kill an unwary impala, he doesn't know that a lion's going to come along and knock him out and kill him. That that little, just I saw in Kenya only a week ago, uh, a newborn little Thompson's gazelle uh, lamb 
Happily, just getting to its very groggy little feet, a couple of jackals come up and pounced on it, and it's dead and devoured in, literally, in minutes. So we're the only people who know we're going to die. Does that make us human? Well, there you go. I've posed all sorts of questions which I've picked up from this book. Is it language? Is it history? Is it, as, as our own Professor Block would say, we're all made of stardust, Kate. Are we? Are we atomic dust? What makes us human? Lovely, lovely book. And by the way, even if you're not travelling, fantastic Christmas prissy or birthday prissy for somebody. What makes us human? 130 answers to the big question. Published by Headline, any good bookshop should have it, or you can order it, or you can get it online. So happy travelling, or happy sitting in your armchair, or happy whatever. Enjoy life, and I'll be back next week. From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has travelled there. And now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate airs Sundays at 12 midday only on 101.9 High FM.